Please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. This evening we continue our journey through the Old Testament book of Esther. Last week, Kurt preached a, a wonderful sermon on Esther 6. I so appreciated that. And uh, that, of course, focused upon God's sovereignty, his rule and reign over the affairs of men, even wicked men like Haman. And tonight we see the end of Haman, literally, as we again t uh, see how God's hand is shown mightily in the preservation of his covenant people. And while we do not read God's name written in the pages of this book of sacred scripture, you cannot help but find him there, wisely, mightily, sovereignly, and often humorously at work, carrying out his master plan and preserving his people. We'll see a bit more of that plan unfold tonight in Esther 7. Here, the identity of Esther is revealed. Her true colors are shown and her Jewishness becomes known. And Haman's true colors are seen as well, as he is seen as the evil enemy of the Jews that he truly is. So let us pray, and then we will read this text and, and, and see what God has for us. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we come before you as a needy people, recognizing our, um, our severe lack of of wisdom and grace, and Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. And Lord, as your Spirit has inspired these words, we pray that your Spirit would now illuminate them to us. Give us hearts of understanding, Lord, and may your Word do its work. You have promised that your Word would not return to you void. So, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit and by your might, Lord, that you would work through the preaching, through the proclamation of your Word this evening. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We will pick up in um, verse 14 of chapter 6, if I may, just read the final verse of chapter 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuer said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. 
as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Now, our series through this Old Testament book has been a little drawn out. And, and because of travels and other things, it's, it's been stretched out. And, and it, maybe we need a little review to bring us back up to speed. Kurt, of course, preached last week. But just so we remember, in the early chapters, of course, it was not Queen Esther that was the queen. It was Queen Vashti. And she was summoned before the king, and she decided not to show up. So she was out of there promptly. And so then Esther enters, and she is taken up along with other young ladies to see if she might be a candidate for the queen. It was not a job for which she applied. She was brought into this by the forces of the empire, not by her own choice. And then in chapter 3, we see Haman, the second in command to the king, as the one who hates the Jews. And we see that this hatred is born out of the fact that this man, Mordecai, will not bow to him. He refused to show worship or allegiance to him. And then Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, as the text tells us, schemes to have the king, the, the man-pleasing, the the self-interested, the self-pleasing King Ahasuerus, issue a royal order to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. If you recall from chapter 3, he doesn't name them as Jews in that. He just describes this people, and Ahasuerus just signs off on it. And this, of course, was not just an idle threat. It was specific. It was time-bound. Verse 13 of, of chapter 3 says, Letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This was not a general order of destruction. It was to happen on a specific day, on the calendar. They were, they were to kill all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And this leads us to chapter 4, where we find Mordecai grieving this proclamation that the king has issued. And he's pleading with Esther to step up for her people. Now remember, while Mordecai's ethnicity is well known in the, in the palace and in the area, Esther's is not. Mordecai's ethnicity was the driving force behind this decree, but Esther was remaining anonymous as a Jew. She kept it hidden. It, it was her big secret, really. And this was initially at Mordecai's request, we see in the early chapters. But in chapter 4, Mordecai says, Esther, you need to step up. You need to save your people. You're the person that maybe God has put in the place to do this. And we know that she did just that. And then in chapter 5, we see the advancement of really two narratives. Esther goes before the king, 
Uh, she risks her life. She goes before the king and he holds out that golden scepter to accept her into his presence. And, but instu- instead of revealing the issue immediately, she's a bit coy. And she instead invites the king along with Haman first to one banquet. And then the anticipation builds a little more as she says, well, why don't you come to another banquet tomorrow and I'll tell you what my request is. And then the other narrative that is advanced is that of Haman and his evil plan for Mordecai to hang or impale him. Some commentators say upon the colossal gallows that he orders to be built. And then, of course, as we saw last week in the text that was preached this story of Haman and Mordecai takes a very interesting and ironic twist as we, as we see that Haman is humbled before Mordecai, having to honor him publicly. And we see God's perfect providence, his surprising victory and God's unstoppable will, his sovereign rule and reign in the affairs of this evil empire, the Persian empire, and in the life of this wicked man, Haman. And if, as we read at the end of chapter 6, um, we, I guess we did not read what, what Zeresh said, but in the verses just previous to what we read tonight, at the end of chapter 6, we see Haman's wife, Zeresh, not really offering very encouraging words to him, but basically saying, if this Mordecai is a Jew, and of course we, we, knew, we know he is, and, Mo- and Haman knew he was, if he's a Jew, you're going to fall before him. And it's interesting that... Um, The gallows were built and the decree to kill the Jews came as a result of Mordecai not falling before Haman. And here his wife is saying, you're going to fall before him. And the final verse that we read is from chapter 6 tells us that that here Haman is just kind of uh, complaining and and mourning and his, his frustration at what has happened to him that day. And then the eunuchs come in and whisk him away to this banquet. And that takes us to chapter 7, where we will dwell this evening. And in this text, I want us to see three things. I want us to see, first of all, Esther's skillful plea. As she lays her case out before the king, and with great wisdom and courage, makes her place, makes her plea to the king. So Esther's skillful plea. And then we see, of course, Haman's desperate plea for his life. Because he knows he is in hot water. He knows he is about to die. He knows that the wrath of the king has been stirred. And we see Haman's desperate plea. And finally, I want us to see how this text points us to Christ, who is our only plea. First of all, Esther's skillful plea. This, of course, is the, is the second banquet that Esther has hosted for the king and Haman, and they've, they've eaten, and maybe they're into their third or fourth glass of wine. I'm only guessing there. The scripture doesn't tell us, but wine was very much a part of their meal. And the king once again asks this question that he's already asked Esther at least twice before. He says, what is your wish, and what is your request? He promises her, promises her this, this great promise of every, anything you want up to half the kingdom. And Esther seems to know that she's pushed the king probably about as far as she can. She can't string him on any longer. So after the niceties of if I have found favor and if it please the king, here is my wish. Here's my wish, my life. Here's my request. Let my people live. Imagine what the king must have felt. She, she goes on in verse 4. She says, for we have been sold 
I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. That's what the decree said. She uses those same words with the great wisdom that God gives her in that moment to quote the decree that orders the destruction of her people. She brings that decree forward, the decree that was sealed with the signet ring of the king and distributed to all 127 provinces pretty much across the known world at that time in the language that they spoke in those provinces. And then if you recall from, I believe it was chapter 3, that the decree was toasted by the king and old Haman himself. And Esther, in doing this, steps into the light. No more is she the slave girl of unknown origin, become harem favorite, become queen. She is now the Jewish queen Esther and the one condemned to die. She goes on in her appeal. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, I would have been silent. Esther is well aware of the absolute authority of the king. We read of no bill of rights in Persia in that day. The empire's authority was absolute. It reached far and wide. And if, if the king wished to enslave a person, he would do just that. And the irony here is, of course, that that is basically what has happened to Esther. She has been enslaved in the service of the king. Her path to where she was today was a result of the empire forcing her into the harem of the king. And she's really making a case appealing to his self-interest because she knows how self-interested the king is. And she says that she couldn't, simply, she couldn't simply say, look, wiping out the Jews is wrong. Genocide is bad. He, did, he wasn't really concerned with that. But she tries to consider his interest... As one commentator said, the only constitutional given in the empire was the right of the king to maximize his own interests. And we've seen him do that again and again. And Esther appeals to that, in a sense saying, this will affect your bottom line, king. Imagine if you wipe out a whole group of people, what it's going to do to your tax base or, or how it's going to affect the kingdom, in a sense. And she is subtle in her request, and it reminds us of, of how the prophet Nathan appealed to David initially in, in showing him his sin. He, he stirred him up. He, he affected his emotions. And that's what she does here with, with the king. She doesn't initially bring accusation against Haman. She states the fact of, facts of, of what has happened to her and to her people. And imagine if you will, what the king must have felt in that moment while before her entrance into the court, just a couple days before, she'd kind of slipped off the radar. Remember her, what she said to Mordecai? She said, I haven't, I haven't seen the king for 30 days. He's, he's had his interest on maybe other ladies in the court, maybe, maybe political affairs. But now suddenly, Queen Esther's very much on his mind. This is the second banquet that he's been to. She's fed him well. He's full of wine. He's, he's, he's very much tuned in to what she wants. He has given her basically a blank check saying, Queen Esther, you can have whatever you want. And he's laid that before her three times now. But now she, he realizes that her request is her pleading for her life because of a royal decree that he has signed. It was a decree that Haman talked him into signing. 
And whether the king remembered all the details of that decree or not, he was certainly ready to make someone pay. And in a rush of anger and frustration and probably confusion and regret, he asked, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? He wanted a head to roll. He wanted his pound of flesh. And then Esther springs her trap. No more subtlety. She risks it all, and we can almost see her pointing an accusing finger at Haman, and she calls him what he is, a foe and an enemy, that wicked Haman. Talk about emotions running high. Esther has risked it all, no more being coy. Her true identity is revealed before her mortal enemy. And we can hear the raw emotion in her voice. This is the man. He is my enemy. The wicked Haman is the man that has plotted against me and my people. And the king is full of wrath, it tells us, and, and wondering how to fulfill his commitment to his queen, and, and yet wondering how to deal with this law that, that needs to be reversed, that cannot be reversed. He's condemned his favorite wife to death unknowingly. And Haman, Haman is desperate. We are told he was terrified before the king and the queen. His well-laid plan that he thought was so airtight had backfired. His wife was right. He had fallen before Mordecai and the Jews. And among the people that he so loved to hate is the wife of the king, whom the king, at least in this very moment, loves very dearly. And that brings us to our second point, Haman's desperate plea. Verse 7 tells us that the king was full of wrath and decided to take a walk in the garden. Now, we, we read that and we think, well, he's cooling off. And, and maybe that was part of it, but he, he was angry. He was good and angry with Haman for what he had done, but he was probably also angry at himself. And he was probably already plotting what he could do in that difficult situation. The king's reputation was at stake. He had promised Esther anything, up to half of the kingdom, and she had pled for her life. Would he grant that request? And he had issued a decree which could not be reversed. He had given authority to Haman to carry out a decree to kill the Jews. His anger seemed first directed at Haman. What could he do with this man who was the root of this conundrum? Haman knew he was in trouble. He must have thought that his only hope was maybe, maybe to gain some favor from Esther because the king was out of the room and maybe if she would grant him a pardon, the king would listen. Verse 7 tells us that Haman saw that harm was determined against him by the king and he's beside himself and, and he lays aside all courtly protocol and he does what is, was actually forbidden there. He, he finds himself alone or, or at least in, in limited company with the wife of the king, and he's also in close proximity to her. For the law stated that no one was to be within seven steps of any of the king's concubines. And he is much closer than that. He, in his, in his dismay, is falling on the couch where Esther is. Haman is falling before Queen Esther. He's begging for his life on the couch where she reclined. And he is in this very compromised-looking position when the king comes back in from his walk in the palace garden. And whether the king actually thought he was assaulting Queen Esther or not, we don't really know. But we, what we certainly know is that the king was looking for something to accuse Haman of, 
And in that moment, he found it. And he, of course, says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And evidently, that was an automatic death sentence. For the text tells us that promptly, the eunuchs came with the sack or the cloak and put it over Haman's head. And in yet another ironic twist, one of the eunuchs has this bright idea. This, and he says, I'll paraphrase, you know... I just happen to know of this brand new gallows over at Haman's place. You know, the giant gallows that he prepared for Mordecai? You know, that good guy that saved your life, king? Maybe we could put that to use. And immediately the king says, go, hang him there. And then, of course, we see that the king's wrath is abated. The demands of justice were met. This is not the end of the story. As you know, there's still three chapters in the book that we'll get to to see how this is worked out. But this is the end of Haman. The king had to deal with Haman in order to move towards a solution, towards saving the queen's people. And with the death of Haman, the wrath of the king abated. And as we'll learn in the next few chapters, the people were saved. And that brings us to our third point, to Christ, our only plea. And as you think about these events that are very exciting and full of tension and full of emotion and full of, you know, conspiracy and murder and, and you know, all of these things, we say, okay, where is Jesus? But we have to look that there's, there's really some overarching scriptural principles that are illustrated here. First of all, we see God's justice. We see God's justice upon Haman. We are told, um, and it's, it's brought out in various places throughout Esther, that, that Haman is an Agagite. Now, if you recall who Agag was back in 1 Samuel 15, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, whom Saul, King Saul, failed to destroy. If you'll remember that story, Saul took him as basically a prize of war. And they killed all the things that they didn't want to keep. And they kept the prize of the sheep and the, and the animals. And Saul, uh, Samuel, the prophet, called him to account and said, What is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? You were to kill everything. And Saul makes the excuse, Oh, we were the people wanted to save the best of the sheep for sacrifices. And he doesn't really give an explanation of why he saved the king. I think it's probably just for his own pride and ego. And then... Samuel, in, in a rather gruesome uh, uh, account of what he did, but he did it to destroy the enemy of God's people. He hacked Agag to pieces. The prophet Samuel did so. But the Amalekites go back even further before that. If we read back in Exodus 17, we see how the Amalekites were the enemies of God's people in the wilderness wanderings. And we see... That God said in Exodus 17 that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so we see God's justice being brought upon his enemies. As one has said, though the mill of God's justice grinds slowly, yet they grind exceedingly fine. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. So we have to remember that God's justice is sure. And as Kurt mentioned last week, there, there was an opportunity for Haman to repent. But God's justice is sure. God will bring justice upon his enemies. 
And that's what the first principle we need to see from Esther 7. But we also need to see God's grace. And we see that, of course, in Queen Esther and in her actions. First of all, she identified with the people of God. Even though she initially kept that hidden um, and she didn't want to be seen as one of the people of God, but yet we have watched her grow in wisdom. We've watched her grow in courage and she willingly shares in the condemnation of her people. She stands in solidarity with a condemned people. She has stood unflinchingly with those who were under the sentence of death. And as she does, she points forward to her Savior who identifies with us, people who are condemned to death. Esther became a mediator for her people and she pointed forward to the great mediator, Jesus Christ. He it is who became man. He it is who became one of us. He it is who became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has identified with us, the condemned people facing death. And secondly, we see the salvation that by God's grace Esther secured she was used mightily of God to secure salvation, and she did so at great peril, at great risk to herself. She knew that she could die, and she said in an earlier chapter, if I perish, I perish. She was willing to do that. She was willing to go that far. And God brought deliverance, but it was only temporal. The deliverance secured was from an earthly kingdom and monarch. But again, she points beyond herself to a Savior that has secured eternal salvation for his people. We stand condemned before an almighty, holy, and just God. Our sin condemns us to death, but Christ has provided a way of salvation. He not only risked his life, he marched unflinchingly into certain death, accepting the penalty that was rightly ours. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, scripture says. And in his death and resurrection, he has purchased redemption. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We also read in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ has secured our salvation. If only we trust in him, our Savior, our king is not one who is full of self-interest. He never gets himself in a situation where he doesn't know if he can save us or not. He has fully paid the penalty of our sin if we only trust in him. The work is done. There is a sure and certain way of salvation. We are condemned to die. But the free offer of the gospel says, Jesus died for sinners. We are sinners. We have only to trust in him and rest in him. Believe in the work that he has done. Trust in Christ today. Come to Christ and bow the knee to him. Confess your sins and trust in Christ alone. Amen. Let us pray.